Now, as you can see, we're back in Romans, which I'm very excited to be teaching here verse by verse. I teach two sermons typically out of Romans while Bob does Sunday school out of Acts. And then we switch, and then he does two sermons out of First John. And then I do Sunday school in the book of Revelation. So that's how we kind of do it, verse by verse. The reason we teach verse by verse is because that's how the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures. Now, with that, let me just ask all of you the question. How many in here have ever heard the phrase when you're at work that success is often not determined by what you know or how good you are, but it's determined by who you know? Well, I think many of you have heard that. Well, salvation, if you think about it, is much the same. Praise be to God, we are not saved by how good we are, but we're saved by who we know. And more maybe apropos is who knows us, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I say that because today, in the message that we're looking in, we're going to find out that at the end of the day, every single person has one of two possible representatives. Either you're represented by Adam, in which you have sin and death to look forward to, or you're going to be represented by Jesus Christ who gives forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. It's that simple. And so that's why I posed the question on the screen, who is your representative? It's either Adam or it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this doctrine of representation is very important to Paul's overarching theme as we're proceeding here in Romans. Remember in Romans chapter 3 and 4, Paul laid out the magnificent salvation that we can have through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But then when he got into Romans chapter 5, Paul showed us the magnificent hope of glory that's assured to every believer in Jesus Christ. But in Romans 5, 12 through 19, that's the section we're in, Paul is now addressing what I like to call the potential fly in the ointment. Now, what is the fly in the ointment? It's the impediment possibly to our future glory, namely sin and death that Adam brings into the world. Now, what Paul is going to assure us here this morning is that, yes, Adam brought in death and unrighteousness to this world, but Jesus Christ, he's going to assure us, overwhelmingly, lavishly, and graciously overturns the work of Adam for those who believe. And that's why we need Jesus Christ to be our new representative. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to begin by reading this entire text in context so you can hear it. Please turn to your own Bibles, if you will. I'll be reading Romans 5, 15 through 19 from the New American Standard Bible. Listen to what Paul wrote. He said, But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, 
the many will be made righteous. Now, dear ones, I want to begin here in verse 15, where we see the contrast between our two possible representatives, namely Adam and Christ. Now, remember, when we left off in Romans 5.14, Paul showed us that Adam was a type of Christ to come. And so certainly Paul wants us to know that both Adam and Christ are similar in that they're representatives. But here, in the verses we're covering this morning, Paul's going to focus not on their similarities as representatives, but in the contrasting nature of their work. You're going to see that what Jesus does is obviously far better, but also far greater. Notice Romans 5.15, Paul says, "...the free gift is not like the transgression." For if by the transgression of the one, the many died much more, did the grace of God in the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Now, the fact here that Paul is focusing not on the similarities between Adam and Christ, but instead on their contrasting nature of their work, notice the phrase, is not like. We have the free gift of Christ, which is not like the transgression that came from Adam. And so what Paul is going to lay out in this section is as devastating as Adam's sin was, because after all, he brought his sin and death and depravity. Jesus Christ's work far exceeds anything that Adam has done. So I want you to realize that Paul is portraying Christ not just as a checkmate or a nullifier of Adam's work, but he far exceeds what Adam has done. In fact, I love our song. We sang about it. Grace, grace, right? That is over, able to overcome our sin and our guilt. That was in our, in our song, wasn't it? There's good theology like Steve pointed out. Now, let me show you a clue that, in fact, Paul wants us to see the surpassing greatness of Christ's work. Notice the phrase, much more. Christ's work is much more than what Adam did to us. In fact, much more, he says, did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. In fact, in this verse 15, Paul heaps up a bunch of terms to show us just how surpassingly great what it is that Christ did for us. Notice here we have the term charisma, which is the term for gift. That's all in this verse. The term charis, grace. The term doria, gift. The term kariti, grace. Eparisusen, which means to abound. So all of these terms are packed into verse 15 because Paul wants us to know that what Christ did far exceeded what Adam did. He didn't just checkmate Adam in the sin that he brought. He drastically overcame it for those who believed. Now, there's also a very important doctrine that we see taught in this verse, and that's the doctrine of representation, that God really does use representatives for humanity. And we see that. For example, notice in the underlying portion, notice the transgression of the one, that's Adam, brought what? He brought transgression and death to the many. Now, who would the many be? Well, that would be all people without distinction, man, woman, and child. But notice we have another representative, the one, Jesus Christ, who can bring salvation, the gift of grace to the many. The many in this instance would be believers in Jesus Christ. So certainly then, God works by representation, by different representatives, doesn't he? Now, one of the reasons I mention this is because back around the 5th century, many theologians following 
Augustine started teaching that the way our sin was imputed to us was from Adam, obviously, but it was because they viewed us as being with Adam in the garden. This is called the realistic view. Sometimes it's called the seminal view. And the idea is that you and I were actually seminally present in Adam, and therefore we actually sinned when he sinned. But realize that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is that we weren't with Adam, but that Adam was our first representative. And as our representative, he sinned vicariously on our behalf. That's the idea that Paul is presenting. Now, all of us in here know what it's like to live vicariously through a representative. How many like watching the Vikings? Oh, come on. That's sad. <laughs> well, blessed are you. I think that's in the Sermon on the Mount somewhere. <laughs> no more heartache. <laughs> Lost four Super Bowls. Anyway, think about this. We had this rookie this past Thursday. He scores a touchdown. And when he scores the touchdown, all the Minnesota Viking fans clap. Why? Is it because we believe seminally we are somehow present with him in the end zone? No. It's because he has the term Minnesota on and he is therefore our representative. And therefore we live vicariously through him. I'm a, I, I'm a guy who works out periodically. It's getting worse and worse as I get older. And I always tell these young guys in the gym, they're in their 20s and they can get down deep in their squats, their ligaments still work. And I always tell them, I'm living vicariously through you guys, so, <laughs> so keep up the good work. Brothers and sisters, that's how God works. We have two representatives. It's either Adam or it's Christ. All right, now let's talk about the results of the two representatives. Verse 16, Paul says, And the free gift, again, is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So again, Paul here is contrasting the two representatives with the is-not-like language. But here, the contrast isn't the work in and of itself, but the results of the work. Now, what are the results of each man's work, our two representatives? Well, notice Adam brings us condemnation. What does Jesus Christ bring us? He brings us justification. Now, what's interesting is in the Greek, there may be a little bit of assonance, which means the terms sound a little bit alike, at least on the ending. Let me show you the great contrast. Katakrima is the term for condemnation, and diakaioma, which is justification. And that little ma ending gives a little bit of assonance, and I think Paul is using that to accentuate his point. Now, here's something I want you to consider. At the end of the day, no matter where you go on the planet, no matter who you meet, every single person is either being represented by Adam, that is, they are in Adam, or they're in Christ. There's no third option. Now, the reason I think that that's important for us to consider is it shows us why Jesus Christ, one reason, why he's the only way to salvation. You see, you can't have a new representative that will overturn what Adam has done in some new religious leader. Buddha isn't going to be a new representative for you. Muhammad is not going to be a new representative for you. Eckhart Tolle is not going to be a new representative for you. Joseph Smith is not going to be a new representative. If you want to get out from under sin and death, which Adam brings, the only representative possible is Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Now, as we go into verse 17, we see the evidence of each representative's work. Let me give you a summary this far. Verse 15, 
Paul showed us the contrast between the works of Adam and Christ. Verse 16, we saw the contrast in the results of that work. Now we're going to see the evidence of the work of Adam and Christ. Paul says, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Notice the big picture again. What's the result of Adam's work? Well, he says that death reigned. Death reigned for all of humanity. And what that means is that you and I and every single person that was ever born into this world was born in a state of depravity, unable to do anything that which is pleasing to God. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, what's the result of Christ's work? Well, the result is that the righteousness will reign in life. Now, take note here of what I have in the underlying portion. Paul, again, wants us to see our two representatives. By the transgression of the one, that's Adam, death reigned, and it's through the one that righteousness will reign in life. Now, in the underlying portion, does everyone see the prepositions by and through? You and I would be tempted to say, well, those are different prepositions, but in the Greek text, they're actually the same. It's the same preposition, dia. Now, the Greek text, I think, is using them as an instrumental preposition, meaning Adam is the instrument by which death reigned. That's what Paul wants us to see. But Jesus Christ is the instrument by which we have righteousness and the reigning of life. That's what Paul wants us to see in this text. Now, one thing we have to consider when Paul says that death reigned, realize he's referring to both spiritual and physical death. So what's spiritual death? Well, spiritual death is separation from God and his blessing. So every single person is born into this world in Adam, separated from God and his blessing, meaning you can't do anything pleasing to him. You can't obey him as you ought. You can't love him as you ought. You're displeasing to God. That's the natural default position of every single person. Now, what's physical death? Physical death is separation of body and soul. So I want you to realize that death in the biblical parlance is not annihilationism as many in the world believe, but death in the Bible is always separation, either separation from God or separation of body and soul. Now, when Paul says that life will reign through the one and that righteousness will reign in this life, what life is Paul referring to? I think he's referring to life both now for the believer, but ultimately in the eschatological age. That is when we get our resurrection and we reign with him in glory. What's interesting is when we transition into Romans 6, Paul is going to show us that because of what Christ has done, you and I can start living the resurrected life now. Not in the sense that we're actually resurrected, but in the sense that the Spirit empowers us to finally do that which is pleasing to God. And so eternal life, in a sense, for the people of God is now. So it's not either or, it's both and. Now, one thing i got to point out, I'm going to pull out my pointer, and I usually lose control of my computer when I do this. But I want to show you a phrase that's very important to our theology. Notice Paul says, those who receive. Does everyone see that phrase? Now, why would that be important? Well, those who receive, I think, modifies the many, that language that we see throughout this passage. Now, here's why I say that many, no pun intended, Christians look at this passage and they'll say, aha, Romans 5 is certainly teaching universalism. Why? Well, if Adam is representing the many 
and the many obviously is every single person, they reason that when Jesus is representing the many, the many must be the same group, every single person. Ergo, you have universalism. But what's very interesting is this phrase, those who receive, is Paul's way of showing us that the benefits that are accrued from Christ's work are not universal to every person, but they are particular to those who receive it. That is, by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So here's what I want you to consider. Think about it this way. What do you need to have Adam sin, death, and condemnation? You just need to be born into this world. What do you need to have Christ's righteousness and everlasting life? You have to be born again. Being born again is God's means of bringing people into his kingdom through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. All right, now, verses 18 through 19, Paul boils it down to just two possible representatives. He says this, he says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Now, here we know, dear ones, that Paul is coming to a conclusion. And we know that because notice in the beginning of the text you have a, a so then. It's an inferential conjunction. Paul is coming to a summary. And what he's doing is he's picking up the logic back from Romans 5.12. So in a sense, Romans 5.13 all the way to verse 17 is somewhat of a parenthesis. And now he picks up his logic from Romans 5.12. Now, let me read Romans 5.18 very carefully again. Notice he says, So then, as through one transgression, that's Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness, that's Jesus, there resulted justification of life to all men. One of the things that puzzles people often is, what does Paul mean when he talks about this one act of righteousness with Christ? After all, didn't Jesus live a righteous life his whole life? So there would be multiple acts of righteousness. Well, that's true. All of Jesus Christ's life was a righteous act. And perhaps that's what Paul intends. But more than likely, what Paul is focusing on here with this righteous act is what Jesus did on the cross. Why is that? Because the cross is not only the place in which Jesus provides a propitious atonement for his people, but it is also the final opportunity for the Son of Man to sin and therefore not be a good representative, a valid representative for his people, but he doesn't. Jesus is the only man in the history of the world that ever fully said, not my will, but thine be done. And that was accomplished finally and forever on the cross. In fact, this is why Paul accentuates the cross in Philippians 2.8. Listen to Philippians 2.8. Paul says of Jesus that he was found in the appearance as a man and that he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross. So the death of the cross is probably the act that Paul is thinking of. Now, when we get to verse 19, here's the coup de grace, or as some say, the coup de grace. Here we are, coup de grace, I guess it would be. Verse 19, if you want to know what Romans 5, 12 through 19 says, you can just read verse 19. Here's the summary. Verse 19, he says, For as through the one man's disobedience, Adam, 
the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now that term made is very significant. The term is kathistimi in the Greek. And if I were writing the Eric Dalma version for an English translation, I would render it a point that literally through the one man's disobedience, the many were appointed sinners. Okay, why? Because throughout the New Testament, kathistimi is often used with the idea of appointing someone to either a status or to a position. For example, let me read Titus 1.5. Paul said this to Titus at Crete. He said, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders. Appoint elders, appoint would there be kathistimi. That's the idea. Now, notice what I'm claiming then is that in this text, Paul is saying that in Adam, you and I were appointed to the status of being a sinner. But yet through faith in Christ, you and I can be appointed to having the status of what? Of being one who is righteous forevermore in God's sight. Now, notice I'm saying that kathistomy here is forensic language. First of all, what is forensic language? The term forensis in Latin means in open court. What I'm claiming is what we have here is forensic language. Now, don't misunderstand me. Kathistomy, anytime you see that in the New Testament, is not necessarily forensic language, but it is here in the context of Romans 5. Why? Because throughout Romans 3 through 4, listen carefully, Paul has labored to show that in God's courtroom, the only way anyone can be justified is by having our representative Jesus credit to us and to our account something that we don't have, namely righteousness. And so here, Paul is reiterating that idea that in the courtroom of God, you have two representatives. In Adam, you're appointed to being a sinner. And if you do nothing more, if you don't come to Christ, that will be your status forevermore. But in the courtroom of God, if you will come to Jesus Christ by faith, you'll be appointed to having the status of a righteous one forevermore. That's what Paul wants us, I think, to understand here. All right, now, one of the questions I want to ask is, does this passage speak to the mode of imputation? Meaning, how is it that Adam's sin was transmitted to us? Now, I'm going to deal more with this in our application, but I would say yes. I would say that God works by representation. You have two representatives, either Adam or Christ. That's how it's imputed. When Adam sinned, his sin was credited to our account. If you trust in Jesus Christ, his righteousness can be credited to your account. Now, another question that comes up in this text is, does the many in this text imply universalism? Well, I just addressed that, didn't I, in the previous verse. But let me reiterate it. That phrase back in verse 17 where it said, those who receive the abundance of grace, that shows us that the many who receive the benefits of Christ's work are not universally every single person, but it's limited to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Dear brothers and sisters, what Paul wants us to know is that at the end of the day, there's only two possible representatives. In Adam, you have sin and death. And in Jesus Christ, by faith in him, you can have everlasting life, the forgiveness of sins. And the reason Paul is laboring this is because he's showing us we have an assured glory an assured future hope. And the only possible impediment to that would be sin and death. But in Christ, your new representative, all of that has been taken care of. You are forever secure. 
the hope of glory will in fact be yours if you're found in Christ. I think that that's Paul's grand point. Okay, now let's do some applications. I have two points that I think flow from this text. Number one, we must understand that God works by imputation. Again, one representative or another. Adam's sin is credited to all people, while Christ's righteousness is credited to only believers. Now, in this application point, I'm going to do a little bit of systematic theology with you. In a couple of weeks, Bob is going to do some with us, and he's going to lay out the doctrines of Christ, which I'm very excited about. So, in this application point, we're going to talk about how was Adam's sin imputed to us. Don't glaze over. This is like seminary for free. A lot of people pay for this, okay? So you get seminary for free this morning, okay? Number two, we should understand our need for Christ to be our faithful representative. That's what we need. We need the faithful one who was the faithful Adam, the faithful son that no human being ever could be. Okay, let's begin with this first idea. I want to talk about the various views throughout church history regarding the imputation of Adam's sin to us. How did it occur? Because I think Romans 5 speaks to this. Now, one thing I want you to think about is last time I showed you a chart, and in that chart we focused on the severity of the corruption that we received from Adam, whether we were dead in sin, alive in sin, or just weakened. And we concluded that we were dead. Well, this time I'm going to focus on how the sin of Adam is transmitted to us. So bear with me. I'm going to go through through a little bit of church history with you. The first view that I want to consider with you this morning is called the Pelagian view. Now, who was Pelagius who came up with this view? Well, he was not a good guy. Pelagius was a 5th was century monk, and he did a lot of monking around with doctrine. He was fighting against Augustine's understanding of total depravity. Remember, Augustine had that famous saying, and I can't say it verbatim in King's English, but the basic gist was Augustine had a saying where he said, Lord, command us to do what you want, but give us the ability to do it. Well, that rubbed Pelagius the wrong way. Why? Because he believed in human ability. Why would God, Pelagius reasoned, have to give us the ability to do something he commanded? So Pelagius didn't believe that you and I were guilty because of Adam. He didn't believe that we were morally corrupt. He believed that we were alive spiritually and could do that which is pleasing to God. And so to Pelagius... He looked at Adam's sin as not being credited to our account, but instead Adam was just a bad example. And you had the freedom to either choose to follow him or not. Now, many of you might say, well, look, Pelagius is 5th century. Who cares about that now? Not so quick. There was a theologian, as Bob has pointed out in his writings, that had a major impact on evangelical revivalism in America today named Charles Finney. Charles Finney was a full Pelagian. And you'll see many of those ideas still at play in revivalism and evangelicalism in America today. Now, let's take a look at another aberrant view. This is Arminianism. Arminianism comes from Jacob Arminius. Arminius, Arminius sorry. He was a 16th century Dutch theologian. Now, there's been a lot of talk about what Arminius believed. And a lot of people say, well, he's been misrepresented. I don't think so. Jacob, or, or, I'm sorry, Arminius he didn't believe that Adam's sin was credited to our account. What Adam, or excuse me, Arminius believed is that Adam's sin was nullified through prevenient grace. In fact, let me give you a quote here from a Dr. Elosi. He's the historical theology professor at Baptist Theological Seminary. He did a whole research project 
on what Arminius believed. He said this, quote, In his view, original sin means that the human race lost something, that is, original holiness, but it's not that mankind was plunged into corruption or gained a depraved nature, unquote. So for the Arminian view, they believed, yes, there was sinful influence, but provenient grace was able to overcome it, and therefore we're not guilty because of what Adam did. And the extent of corruption is such that we're just weakened. We can still reach up and grasp onto God. If we will reach up, he'll reach down. That's the idea. And when it comes to imputation, again, the worst thing that we could say is Adam was just a bad example. Now, let me give you one more case where we have imputation is just a bad example. The semi-Pelagian view. This comes from a 5th century theologian named John Cassian. And he also believed that you and I are not infected necessarily by the guilt of Adam. You and I are, yes, guilty, but we're not infected by his corruption. Why? Because you and I can still reach up and grasp onto God and be saved. That's what Cassian believed. And so he again believed that Adam is only a bad example that we don't want to follow. Now, the big picture I want you to see here is all three of these views. Notice in the imputation column, Adam doesn't give us his sin and his corrupt nature. He's just merely a bad example. And this has infected evangelicalism. This has led to the seeker-sensitive movement. Do you ever wonder why when the scriptures say, none seek after him, no, not one, you have seeker-sensitive movement? You have a whole movement created for a group of people that don't exist? It's because people got it wrong with depravity. That's why we're laboring this point. If you don't think that you're imputed with Adam's sin, you'll become seeker-sensitive. What I want to show you is these three views don't line up with Scripture. Let's compare it to what, with what Paul said, Romans 5.19. Notice Paul said, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Notice Paul's point is not just that Adam was a bad example, but through the work of Adam, his disobedience, we were made, kathistomy, we were appointed as sinners. So right away, we have to say, look, you can't be Pelagian, Arminian, or semi-Pelagian on that point because it contradicts what Paul says. And what's more, if we're going to say that Adam was just a bad example, will we then say that Jesus Christ was just a good example? Because if Adam was just a bad example and you can still do with that which is pleasing to God, you don't need a savior. You just need a good example. And many liberal theologians concluded that. But brothers and sisters, what I want you to see is clearly Paul is refuting these doctrines here in Romans 5.19. Now, let me give you three views that I think are more biblical, and then on the next slide, I'll define which one I think we should hold to. The realistic view. Now, notice in the column of imputation, the realistic view says, yes, Adam's sin was credited to us. And again, this was the view of Augustine. But Augustine was a little unusual in that he believed that we were somehow seminally present in Adam, and therefore, when Adam sinned in the garden, we were actually there. And that's how Adam's sin is immediately credited to us. We were in his loins, as it were. Sometimes that's why it's called the seminal view. Now, notice the guilt. Yes, we're guilty because of what Adam did. The extent of it, we're dead in our trespasses. We can't do anything pleasing to God. Now, I'll show you another view. I call it the genetic view. Many call it the mediated view. But notice in this view, yes, we're guilty because of what Adam did. 
The extent of it is we're dead in our trespasses. We can't do anything pleasing to God. But in the genetic view, Adam's sin is given to us in a mediated way, genetically through the parents. So again, it's not that we sinned with Adam in the garden. It's that Adam was the first corrupt parent, and he had a bunch of parents that follow him, all with corrupt DNA, and that corruption comes to us not directly, but indirectly in a mediated way through the parents. Now, the final view, the federal view, this is the view that I think is the most biblical. I'll put my cards on the table. This says, yes, we're guilty because of our representative Adam. The extent of our guilt is we're dead in our trespasses. And the imputation is immediate, not because we were there in the garden, but because of our first representative, what he did. And therefore, we need a new representative who lives the perfect life that Adam and no one else could. Now, let me further just discuss these last three options. I want you to come out of here knowing what the biblical view is. Transmission. Let's look at the realist view. Again, the realist view is we were actually there in the loins of Adam, sinning with him when he sinned in the garden. Three problems with that. Three problems. Turn your Bibles to Romans 5.14. Please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verse 14. As you're turning to Romans 5.14, remember the realistic view says, Adam's sin is given to us because we were actually there. Therefore, we sinned the exact sin that Adam did because we were present in his loins, in his DNA, as it were. Okay? You're going to see that Romans 5.14 presents a problem to that. Paul says in Romans 5.14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam who is a type of him who was to come. So notice in Romans 5.14, Paul is saying that, well, not everyone sinned in the likeness of Adam. But in the realist view, you have to say everyone sinned in the likeness of Adam. Are you with me? So we can't sin in the likeness of Adam and not sin in the likeness of Adam at the same time in the same relationship. That's called a contradiction. Okay? So when we have a contradiction between Scripture and some theologian, who are we going to go with? Scripture! Bingo! We're going to go with Romans 5.14. So I think we can rule out the realistic view for that reason. A second reason we can rule it out. Remember in the passage that we were studying, six times in Romans 5.15-19, we saw the one and the many language. And what that shows us is clearly God works by way of representatives. So the idea in Scripture, and I wrote this down because I thought it was so profound when I thought of it at 2 in the morning, the Bible teaches that the one representative acts on behalf of the many, not the many acting with the one. Are you with me? Let's say that again. The Bible teaches that the one representative acts on behalf of the many. It does not teach that the many were acting with the one. That's what Paul was saying. Okay, so what I want you to understand, that's another reason to to get rid of the realistic view. Now, the third reason is think about the text again in Romans 5.19. Notice the logic down in verse 19 in the underlying portion. It says, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Think about this. If we were actually there with Adam in the garden, were we actually there with Christ on the cross? Were we actually there with him in his obedience? Well, that, of course, would be blasphemy. So I think it ruins the parallelism, and I think, therefore, it should be jettisoned. So for all of those reasons, I don't think realist, the realistic view has anything going for it. Now, let's look at the genetic view. 
the genetic view again says we received our corrupt nature not directly but indirectly through our parents. But again, let's look at this passage, Romans 5.18, where it says, so then through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Notice it doesn't say through our parents or through our mom and dad. Paul could have said that. But it was through the one transgression of one man that you and I ended up becoming sinners. And so what's being taught here, dear ones, is not some genetic view that, yes, our corrupt nature came from our parents, but rather it came from our representative. And so that leads me to my final point here, and that is, I think this is the correct view. The view in Scripture is called the federal headship view. And that is God works by different representatives. Either you're represented by Adam or you're represented by Jesus Christ. In Adam, every single person became a sinner through his one act because he vicariously sinned on our behalf just as Christ vicariously lived a perfect life. Now, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, verse 5. I want you to see that God does work by imputation. He does credit a representative a representative's work to our account. So I'll show you that God did this with Christ. I think that's what he did with Adam. Romans 4, 5. Hopefully you've turned there in Romans 4, 5. Notice Paul says, but to the one who does not work, but believes, so salvation is by faith alone, in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness, credited as logizomai. It's credited to our account. So again, in the courtroom of God, God sees a representative's work as being imputed to us or given to us. Well, that's exactly what I think he sees with Adam, that Adam, our first representative, his work was credited to us. Dear brothers and sisters, as you walk out here today, I want you to tell your neighbor when they ask you what you learned in church, you say, I learned to be a person who believes in the federal headship of both Adam and Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, it's one or the other. Either Adam was your representative and you became a sinner in thought and word and deed, not just because you followed his example, although you did, and you sinned in every way, but you sinned because you were born a sinner. And so the only way out is through a new representative, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with that, I want to finally get to this idea of Jesus being our faithful representative. There's many places in the Bible where Jesus Christ is depicted as the faithful servant that none of us could be, the faithful son. You could look at Galatians 4 and Hebrews 2, Hebrews chapter 3, Philippians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 15. It's all over the place. But what I want to do is focus just on the Gospels, and particularly just Luke and Matthew, because I want you to see how they portray Jesus as both the new Adam and the new faithful son that we need in order to be right before God. So let's begin in Luke. Luke 3.22, here's the account of Jesus being baptized. Notice here it says, And the Holy Spirit descended upon him, that's upon Jesus, in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now in this text, notice we have all three members of the Trinity. We have the Son who's being baptized, we have the Holy Spirit descending upon Christ, fulfilling Isaiah 61, that Jesus is the one who is anointed with the Spirit. But we also have the Father who says, you are my beloved Son. Now, what's very interesting is right after that baptism, 
where God the Father declares Jesus to be his son, you have the genealogy beginning in Luke 3.23. Now notice in Luke 3.23, Luke says when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. So stop there. So throughout the rest of this section, Luke lays out the genealogy. But then he concludes in verse 38. Notice he says he's also the son of Enosh, the son of Seth. He goes all the way back, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is what we call an inclusio. Luke is showing us in Luke 3.22, Jesus is the son. Down in Luke 3.38, the bottom bracket, Jesus is the son. He's the new Adam. And he is the new Adam that's able to live the perfect life that the first Adam and all of other human beings failed to do. I think certainly Jesus Christ is portrayed as the faithful Adam. That's what we see right away in the Gospel of Luke. Okay, now let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Here Jesus is being portrayed as the faithful son. So Luke's genealogy connects everything back to Adam, Jesus' genealogy. But Matthew connects it back to what? To Abraham, right? Now, why would he do that? Why does Matthew bother with Abraham? Because Matthew wants you to see that Jesus is the faithful son that Israel never was. That's the point. That's what the readers or the writers trying to do for you. Okay, let me show you how this works out. Think about Exodus 4.22. What does God say to Pharaoh? He says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. The firstborn is the one that has the inheritance rights. So who has the inheritance rights? Who's God's representative? It's Israel. But yet, Pharaoh mistreats him. So what happens in Exodus 14, according to 1 Corinthians 10, is Israel is brought out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And Paul says that was really a form of a baptism. They're baptized, and now they're on their way to the promised land. And in Exodus 15, we see that Israel goes into the wilderness. Now, what's very interesting is when you look at the beginning of Matthew, Jesus' life, in a sense, recapitulates this. Matthew 3, 16 through 4, 1. Here's the son being baptized. It says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Stop there. Notice the similarity between what God says of Jesus and what he said of Israel. You see, Israel went into the wilderness for how many days or how many years? It was 40 and they failed. They weren't a faithful son. But now Jesus is going through a baptism just like Israel did. And he is the faithful son. And so notice in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Israel, God's son, went into the wilderness for 40 years. They failed. Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days and he succeeded. He's the faithful son. That's what the gospel writers want us to understand. Why? Because we need a new representative. When I tell people about the gospel, the gospel, remember, means good news. It's good news about how we can be saved. But I always tell people that the good news only makes sense in light of the bad news. Much like a beautiful diamond shines so much more brilliantly when it's placed against a black velvet backdrop. 
What's the bad news that makes the good news understandable? Well, the bad news is that every single person was born into Adam, born into sin and death, and that we actually sin of our own free will because we're in that depravity. We sin in thought, word, and deed, and the wages of this sin is death, not just temporary death, being put into the ground, separation of body and soul, but one day eternal death separated from God forever in the lake of fire. That's what the scriptures teach. That's bad news. I don't know of any news that's worse. But in light of that bad news, the good news shines so beautifully. The good news is that God the Father sent forth his Son, the Son who existed as God and with God from all eternity. At a point in time, he became a man. Now, why did he become a man through a virgin birth? Because we needed a new representative. We needed a new Adam. We needed a new son, a faithful son that we weren't. And he is able to live the perfect life that no human could so that by faith in him, his righteousness could be credited to our account. But Jesus didn't just stop there by living a perfect life. He also went to the cross. And on the cross, he paid the debt for his people. He died a substitutionary death. Once for all, the just Jesus on behalf of us, the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. So when Jesus died on the cross, he took upon himself the full measure of God's wrath so that those who would trust in him could go free. What's the proof that Jesus lived a perfect life and that he died a propitious death on the cross to absorb God's wrath? The proof, it is, proof of it is his resurrection on the third day. He was raised from the dead and his resurrection furnishes proof to all men that there's only one way to salvation. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, we can believe it. Why? He was raised from the dead. This Jesus also ascended into the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of God where he lives forevermore to make intercession on behalf of his people. It's also promised from there that he's coming again bodily to bring a glorious kingdom what must we do? What must we do to escape the sin and death that Adam brought? Well, Jesus gives a commandment. Every single person, according to Mark 1.15, is to repent and to believe the gospel. Repentance has to do with a turning, having a changing of mind. Every single person, if God is here, every single person is depicted in the scriptures as going away from him in idolatry. And so repentance is turning from idols and turning to God in his terms. You might ask, what's an idol? It's anything other than faith alone in the biblical Jesus Christ alone. Anything other than that is an idol and associated with it is sin. We're to turn from that and turn to faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, if you will trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll have a new representative, a representative that will give you a righteousness that you'd never had, who will remove your sins as far away as the east is from the west, so far will he remove your sins, meaning they're eternally away, and you will have the very righteousness of Christ in the assurance of future glory, not because of what you've done, but because of Jesus Christ, your great representative. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you work by the way of imputation. We thank you that you work by the way of representatives because we would be lost otherwise without Christ's perfection. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've disclosed these things in your word and that this impediment of sin and death 
that impedes our future glory has been taken out graciously and lavishly through Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank you so much for my dear brothers and sisters in here who have fled to you. I pray, Lord, that so many others, our loved ones, family, friends who don't know you, that they also would repent and trust upon Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Lord, give us boldness in our witness. Put the gospel upon our lips and put it in our hearts so that we may live pleasing lives. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.